You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where we explore how to integrate timeless principles and practices into everyday life. On today's episode, my guest is Tim Ash. Tim is an authority on evolutionary psychology and digital marketing. He's a sought-after international keynote speaker and the best-selling author of Unleash Your Primal Brain and Landing Page Optimization. In this episode, Tim and I discuss the lie of rationality, how we learn and remember, why emotions are central to decision-making, the power of language, the dance between our two brains, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Tim Ash. Hey, Tim, thanks for connecting today. <laughs> My pleasure, Joshua. Great to be with you. Great. I've already touched on on your bio and, and background in the intro, Tim, but how would you describe your, your work today? Wow. Well, I'd say I, I've come full circle for trying to understand how the brain and human beings work and then applying that to marketing, making a lot of clients a lot of money in my agency days, and now I'm back to evangelizing and teaching about that. What initially sparked this interest or, or curiosity, I guess, to write the book, Un- Unleash Your Primal Brain, but maybe also many decades ago? It started it, during my college days. I went to UC San Diego, which was, uh, well, it's been a, a rocket ride in terms of its reputation. Amazing school, very interdisciplinary. So I had a double major in cognitive science and computer engineering and stayed there for seven years of PhD work in what would now be called neural networks or machine learning. So I've always had an interest in in learning and cognition. And I had a really fun PhD committee. We had an economist, a linguist, a guy from electrical engineering, as well as two professors from computer science. So I've always marinated in that stew of understanding the mind, learning, and cognition. <laughs> well, I appreciate that background for sure. The The book I found to be very readable and, and entertaining, so I think you did a great job with it. Before we get into some of the specifics, how would you define the terms primal brain and, and maybe conscious brain? Mm, that's a great question. We only live in our conscious brain, and we're only vaguely aware of what's actually running the show. So because we think in terms of thoughts and language, it's kind of hard to be part of the system and understand the system. And it turns out that thoughts and language, the part that we call the conscious mind, is actually something that runs out of energy very quickly and can't multitask at all, does one thing at a time and is easily distracted. And the primal brain is everything that's emotionally based or automatic reactions. And that's actually processing massive amounts of information every second, keeping you alive, letting you survive and thrive. And this is really important, literally making all of the decisions. There is no such thing as an objective decision as much as we'd like to be Mr. Spock. It turns out you literally can't make a decision without an emotional component because that's what prioritizes the options for you. Well, I'm really excited to to get into 
emotions and, and, and so many topics that you touch on throughout the book. But I love how you start the very first chapter with this big lie. So what, what is the, the big lie, Tim? Yeah, well, it's not about the stolen election, in case you're wondering. <laughs> We're not going to get political here. Okay. Uh, the big lie is the lie of rationality embedded in Western thought. Going back to the ancient Greeks, we have this notion, if we could only tame the wild horses of our emotions and think logically that we'd be better off. Uh, I say in the book, Descartes once famously said, I think, therefore I am, and uh, we're all of his philosophical grandchildren. But that bias is actually wrong and does us a disservice. So the first thing we have to do is take a wrecking ball to this idea that we're rational creatures and can guide our lives with rationality. Out of curiosity, why do you think this information of of us basically not being so rational is not necessarily touched on throughout so much of, of education, unless you're maybe, you know, in a psychology class. It seems odd. Well, if you think about describing people as rational, uh, Joshua, you're a rational person. You have high integrity. I can count on you doing what you say you're going to do. You act in predictable ways. What's the opposite of that? Well, as we say here in California, dude, that's totally random. I was like, well, someone ran a red light. That's random. They almost killed me. That's random. I mean, if I can't count on you doing something predictably, you're walking in front of me, you open a door, and just as I walk up to it, you slam it in my face instead of keeping it open for me. That would be a bad world to live in. So none of us want to admit that we're irrational or emotional or driven by strong instincts. That's not a very flattering picture. It makes us sound like animals. And again, in the in the West with our Judeo-Christian tradition, we like to think that we're above all the animal kingdom and so unique and so wonderful. In fact, evolution says otherwise. And how can coming to this realization and, and understanding here maybe the good news of shaping our, our everyday actions? Well, I don't know that it's, it's good news or bad news. The way I describe the book and my thinking about it is this is the operating system for human beings, what all 8 billion of us share in common. So I don't care if you're introverted, extroverted, what your cultural download was, what your tribal beliefs are. This is just tendencies. And a lot of them we picked up from much earlier forms of life. Uh, for example, we talk about dopamine and, uh, oh, that's the, the happy chemical that makes us chase rewards. And it's the three flashing dots when you're getting an instant message when someone's writing a reply back to you. And it, isn't it wonderful and particularly human? Well, the answer is it's not. We share dopamine with fruit flies <laughs> going back several hundred million years. There's nothing human or unique or wonderful about it. In the case of dopamine specifically, it's a very general adaptation of life in order to figure out what to spend energy on, which rewards are worth chasing, and changing our mental model if we don't get what we expect. That's a very basic mechanism of life, I guess you'd say. I love the examples that you provide throughout the book. There's, there's so many. But to transition a bit to, to memory, in a chapter, How We Learn and Remember, you write, if you think the function of, of memory is to accurately remember past experiences, you're, you're way off. So what is the function of memory? Wow, that's a great question. I guess I'll attack it as a two-parter. So the first thing is, 
what information even gets noticed. And the fact is that the brain is a giant ignoring machine. All the time, there, there, by some calculations, 11 million bits of information per second coming at you. The pressure of your butt in that seat right now. The relationship of every joint in space. It's why when you're eating a salad, you don't stick the fork in your forehead very often because you know where your body parts are in relation to each other. It's your digestive system, perspiration, respiration, heartbeat, all of that. You don't think about keeping your heart beating at night unless you're a really <laughs> advanced Zen master. So all of these things are happening automatically. And most of the time, the answer is nothing needs to change. I don't need to do anything. So we don't even react to them, much less remember them. So the brain is a giant ignoring machine to start with. And then on top of that, even if it notices something, why should I remember it? That's a big tax. I have to sleep on it, commit it to memory, expend energy, retrieving it in the future. So unless it's something really, really important for my survival, I won't even remember it. So bad news for all of the Black Mirror fans out there. I don't know if you've seen this show on TV. They have this episode where you have a, a life rewind and can just rewind to any memory in perfect detail that happened to you in the past. There's no such thing. Your memories are this fickle blend of overlays of past experiences, what had strong emotional components to it, multi-sensory experiences. Riding a roller coaster is the, is the example I use in the book. You're going to remember that because it activates a lot of things. It's unique. It's strongly emotional. It's multi-sensory. And all of those things tell you, oh, I better pay attention to this. Tying your shoes every day, not so much. Why do you think we think otherwise? Because generally, we have this assumption that our, our memories are very good and can kind of recall something. And well, why do you think that is? Well, again, we like to think that there's a continuity to our life, that uh, there's a story and what we are is the retelling of that story. And in fact, there, there are gaps and there's giant amounts of time when we don't remember anything and because there's nothing of survival importance going on. So we like to have a self-image, our brain does, of a particular person and we do a lot of things to reinforce that. But at the brain level, it's only the important unique stuff that's going to be memorized. And even then, not accurately, memories fade, and you can easily mess with people's actions. For example, they've had in court settings, if I, if I show you, you a video of one car having a collision with another, and then I prompt you differently, I say, hey, how fast was that car going when it bumped into the back of the other car? You'd get one set of responses. If I said, how fast was that car going when it smashed into the back of the other car? You're going to get much higher estimates of its speed. So even things we see with our own eyes, we literally can't remember or calibrate properly. Fascinating research around that of, of just those subtle differences that can make a huge impact. Something I love that you, I think, really emphasize throughout the book is around emotions. Emotions are central to our decision making. Mm. Yeah. Could you walk through that and maybe explain the, the components of, of an emotional experience? Yes. So a lot of emotions are incorporated into automatic reactions that are never going to change. Uh, when you burn your hand on a hot stove, you're not going to go, hmm, there's a 
strange burning smell emanating from the tip of my finger. No, you're going to pull your hand away from the stove and hopefully never do that again. That's automatic reaction, and it's also a learned experience. Stoves can be dangerous, and so when you're around a hot stove, you're going to behave differently next time. So essentially, the stronger the emotion, the more pain was caused or the more pleasure you got out of a particular situation, the more highly you're going to value it. You're going to think of it as a survival goal, either minimizing the pain or maximizing the pleasure. So essentially, emotions are what take that infinite number of actions I can take in any given moment and prioritize it for me. Again, usually the answer is do nothing which conserves energy. But whatever the strongest emotional reaction, that's what I'm going to pay attention to the most. That's what I'm going to be drawn to as what I'm deciding or how I'm going to act. As we discussed in the in the beginning, and you start the book off with, we're not so rational. Do you see emotions in that same lens, if you will? I, I think, for example, maybe seeing or experiencing danger that isn't really not us actually being in danger. How do you see that? Well, I, I don't think of as acting emo emotionally. There is no other way to act. So again, let me be clear. There have been people that have had various kinds of brain damage and parts of their brain have been lesioned or separated. The logical part, the conscious part is giving them options, but they literally can't prioritize or decide without emotions. There is no such thing as a logical decision. I mean that literally. The conscious mind cannot decide. So everything is emotional, whether you admit it or not, it's another question. In reference to those emotions, like if we're experiencing emotions that we think to be dangerous, a rope in the, in the corner that we instantly kind of assume to be a snake maybe or something like that. Yes. Yeah, so most of the, the physical survival stuff is built into us and every other form of life on earth. So motion gets our full attention. Because you're here because your great, 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 great grandmother wasn't killed by the bear. And that's because when the bear was running at her, she saw it out of the corner of her eye and ran away, presumably. So we are going to pay attention to motion. There are basic shapes. You're right. People will startle and jump back from a stick in their path when they're hiking because it looks like a snake. There's something pre-conscious as soon as your visual system detects something snake-like is going to freak out and jump backwards. So that's at the level of not even emotional decisions. It's more at a level of automatic survival reactions, I would say. Transitioning to, to language and culture, you, you really elaborate on the power of language. Sure. There are some uniquely human things. So the way the book is laid out is to describe what we share with them earliest forms of life on earth, these basic mechanisms that I was talking about to our mammalian heritage. And then within that are distinctly human, most recent sorts of developments. And one of them is language. Now you can argue that lots of animals have language. They have complex vocalizations. They, chimpanzees and dogs can understand hundreds of human words and so on. But th it's more like me hungry or ah, big bear there, run away. It's, those, it's that kind of language. It's a very practical utilitarian language. And people are very different. We actually evolved language in order to be able to cooperate in large groups and to download cultural knowledge to each other. And the, the language preferences form very early, even six months 
six-month-old babies have a preference for babbling in their own native language as opposed to babbling in nonsense words in other dialects. So th this stuff forms very early so we can understand our cultural tribe. And uh, one of the functions of language is to essentially let us learn from other people's experience. In other words, if I tell you a story, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Sophie's Choice with Meryl Streep. It's about a Nazi concentration camp, and she had to literally make a decision about which of her two children was going to die and which was going to live. Now, hopefully that's not a choice you'll ever have to make. But when I watch that story, I can get the payoff from the experience of the person that's going through it without having the pain to have to go through it myself. So essentially, stories are secondhand experience. And if we listen to them, we're learning. And we're also, in many cases, learning the values of our cultural tribe and what's important to people around us. Does that tie in with these parables that have seemed to have been around for thousands of years that resonate with us so much today? Absolutely. And some stories, almost all stories involve human protagonists, or I guess you'd say anthropomorphic animals, you know, cute cartoon cats, you know, puss in boots or something like that, but that has human quality. So basically, we're telling stories, again, about ourselves, about each other, about how other people behave. We might dress them up a little bit, but all stories involve human protagonists, almost all stories. And there's some historic forms that are very powerful, which is world was good, problem came up, struggled to overcome problem, got to resolution. That's the classical hero's journey like the Odyssey or Star Wars. And that, that form gets used for a lot of storytelling, actually including some very subtle French Nouveau cinema. It's just that the story is much less dramatic in those. But it's essentially the same thing of problem, struggle, resolution, and how you overcame that with the help of, of allies and how it changed you in the process. That's the kind of stories that we need to tell each other in order to learn about the world. When you set out to initially write the book and, and go through the, the long research process of it, what would you say was the takeaway that you'd like for people to walk away with after reading the book? Well, I'll tell you why I wrote it, which is related to what I'd like people to get out of it. As you probably know, I ran a digital marketing agency for about 25 years, and we created and documented $1.2 in value for the Google, Siemens, Expedias of the world, and so on. And I just had this sneaking suspicion that moving money from the consumer's pocket into the bank account of one company versus another was not all there was to life. And I wanted to take this knowledge of the brain and actually help people understand themselves. So I wanted to take it outside of the sphere of marketing and actually even level the playing field because I think we're in a way being manipulated by businesses, by algorithms, by artificial intelligence. And we don't even know what they're doing to us because we think we're logical. And like I said, I wanted to explode that. And in a non-scientific, really fun way, bring it all together. And what I found are a bunch of silos. There was the behavioral economies talking about how to nudge people into changing their behavior. There was the medical imaging people. There was the psychologists and anthropologists. And what the red thread to me 
was through the whole thing was evolutionary psychology. Our brain evolved for a reason and we picked up stuff along the way. So by retracing that arc of evolution, I wanted to fuse all of that stuff together. And it's basically the operating system for human beings. And if you want to apply it to business or marketing or leadership, you can get a lot out of it that way. To relationships, gender differences, again, read it with a different mindset. And finally, personal development and self-understanding. I think there's huge stuff to be mined there. You did such a such a good job with it. I really enjoyed it. And I highly encourage everybody to pick it up. One of the chapters that I really enjoyed as well was this dance between two brains. How would you describe that mm. that dance? Well, again, that's the conscious mind and the primal brain underneath it. And the essential characteristics of those are pretty simple. So the conscious mind has very limited capacity, runs out of attention quickly, gets tired, can't make decisions later in the day, can't multitask at all, and takes in 50, 60 bits of information per second. That's not a lot. Whereas the primal brain is operating ceaselessly, tirelessly, taking in massive amounts, 11 billion bits per second of information, and is able to handle that and make decisions instantly that keep you alive and increase your chances of survival. Who's in charge? It's not the charioteer of the conscious mind. It's the wild horses and the chariot of your primal mind. How has writing this book and I'm assuming becoming really deeply aware of, of this dance maybe, maybe changed your everyday life? Mm, I look for much more subtle influences. For example, there is a, a famous study where in a retail environment, there were two racks of wine, French wines and German wines. And depending on whether stereotypically French or German music was playing in the background, people tended to favor buying one versus the other. But if you came to the checkout counter and you say, well, why did you buy that Riesling as opposed to that Bordeaux? Well, they say, well, because I like Riesling. Well, it's not because the German Oompa band music was playing in the background. It actually probably was, but we won't admit it. And so I'm much more aware of environments, of colors, of arrangements, of architectural spaces, of small interactions and micro reactions I'm getting from other people. So I think it's being much more in the flow and in the present moment instead of being in my head. Mm. That's really interesting. Something I appreciated that I felt was was stressed in multiple places throughout the book was the role of sleep. How do you see sleep mm. tying into the primal brain? Wow. Well, sleep is such a fundamental topic. I devoted a whole chapter to it, but I've also mentioned it in other parts. Sleep is critical daily life support. It's not optional. And I, I've heard about all these people, oh, I'm in the 4 a.m. club. Well, unless you're going to bed at 8 in order to get a full eight hours of sleep, you're actually killing yourself. And I mean that literally. After about 16 hours of staying awake, your brain starts to catastrophically break down. I, I learned recently that up to a full week of non-sleep is acceptable under U.S. torture guidelines. And wow. Keeping someone awake for a week is considered acceptable. That's literally killing someone and driving them insane. Wow. I think we'll look back at these times in supermax prisons where people are locked up in rooms with the lights on for 23 hours a day, and then they, they act out. Hmm, who would have thunk it? I mean, we're, we're literally driving them insane. 
And so sleep deprivation is a horrible thing. You can't learn anything mental without sleeping on it. You can't, any physical skills you rehearse the day before, if you don't sleep, you lose the ability to consolidate them. We get, we're a lot less creative because that happens later in the night with REM sleep. And also we're poor at making social decisions. We can't read people's facial expressions. We basically get paranoid when we think people are much more negatively predisposed to us than they actually are. We lose the ability to read micro expressions on other people. I mean, sleep is not optional. That's the bottom line. I mean, there's no form of life on earth that lives longer than a few days that doesn't have some form of sleep. Migratory birds will have micro-naps and almost fall out of the sky in order to get that sleep. Dolphins, which are mammals and can't breathe water, but they swim in it, they actually alternate their left and right hemispheres. One sleeps while the other one makes sure that they're breathing. So it's not optional. And so put your phone away, get some sleep. Someone listening, maybe pondering the question of, you know, am I sleep deprived? What might be some signs to, to think about? <laughs> <laughs> if you have to ask that question, the answer is yes, you are. Yeah. So it's recommended for most people. I've heard about these people that ostensibly can go their whole life with four or five hours of sleep. I don't know. I've never met one, but seven to nine hours is what's recommended. And here's the thing. You sleep actually in about 90-minute cycles, and the REM sleep that's heavily weighted towards the end of the night. So that last hour and a half chunk is where you get about half of your REM sleep for the night. And so if you're not getting that, you're really screwing yourself. In fact, they've shown that two back-to-back nights of six-hour sleep is the same as missing a full night of sleep. That's how bad it is. So it's not just a little shortchanging. It's a lot. There's all kinds of medical reasons to get sleep. For example, I'm middle-aged, and one of the things that they found out is that people that regularly get about six hours of sleep or less have a 30% higher chance of getting dementia if you're sleeping less in midlife. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Uh, Get some sleep. (laughs) When we think about, obviously, this post-pandemic and kind of transitioning out and thinking about navigating uncertainty. How do you see this this information on, on the primal brain kind of helping us to navigate on uncertainty in some of these hyper-changing times, I guess? Mm. Well, one thing I can tell you is from a cultural perspective, there's some things that are really unique to us. Actually, culture co-evolved with our genes. And I know that sounds really strange, but there's some things about he- being human that aren't possible without having a certain cultural package. The most obvious one is cooking food. You know, we talk about our small intestine. Well, the reason it's called that is it's disproportionately small given the size of our body compared to other animals. So it's less efficient. We don't break down toxins when we eat certain things, but we know which foods to eat. That's a learned cultural thing, how to prepare them. Most grains, like wheat, weren't digestible until we cooked them. Tubers, like potatoes, that they're you can't eat a raw potato. So we learned you use fire, and that made our digestive system smaller, so we physically changed in order to become more efficient. And so cultural stuff is really, really important to us, and we evolved to be cultural creatures, which means we're largely pro-social, we get along well with groups, But we're so weak individually, even among mammals, that we depend on the group for survival even more than most mammals. And the key implication of that for large societies is that 
we will override our direct experience and what we see with our own eyes in and substitute the cultural beliefs of our tribe because the history of human survival is really tribe on tribe aggression. And so you have to be a good team member and you have to just pass on tribal knowledge often without knowing what its purpose was, whether it was effective, you just had to copy it and ape it and transmit it to others around you. And you had to do that. And like I said, at the expense of what you actually see and believe with your own eyes. We're seeing that with political polarization uh, in this country and beyond all these social media echo chambers. There's some really dangerous stuff from an evolutionary perspective, if you want to dig at that a little. <laughs> Definitely. I, I love the the last chapter, uh, the personal challenge. You suggest we attach ourselves to larger and larger tribes, and you talk about these concentric circles. Could you speak to that a bit? I think it's so important. Yeah, so if we look at the, again, evolutionary tribe we lived in, most likely it was about 100 to 200 people on the plains of East Africa a couple of hundred years ago, and they were your relatives. I mean, weakly related, but there was uncertain paternity, so you were, as a man, someone's uncle, father, cousin, nephew. You had some kind of relationship to them. If you look at a tribe as preserving your genes, since there were relatives among your tribe, it makes perfect sense to stick together with your tribe because this is an idea that goes back to Desmond Morris in a book called The Naked Ape that he wrote in the 1970s. But he said the basic building block of life is not an individual or an organism, it's the gene. And genes are remarkably stable over long periods of time. So genes created brains to help genes propagate. So they have this idea, you were saying like, what about our concept as a human being and being rational? Well, genes created the brain and they put those ideas of being a rational human in there to help genes survive and propagate. Genes are what matter, not our individual organisms. And so if you look at it from that perspective, you have one set of allegiances, your closest relatives. You're going to care about them more than other strangers. But the problem is we kind of have multiple allegiances. It's not just to our clan, which is obviously a very strong thing in human history, but also like we're in the podcast tribe, you and I. <laughs> I'm in the um, shave my head tribe, <laughs> you know, the aerodynamic hairstyle tribe, I call it. I'm in the born in the former Soviet Union tribe. Now, that's one I didn't choose, for example, right? Or my skin color or my religion, actually. Yeah, you don't even choose because you're born into that and you start getting indoctrinated in most cases from birth. So there's this, we're composites of these tribal identities and whichever one is active in a particular environment, that's the one that we key in on. This idea of the, the concentric circles have been around for, for so long. I, I think back to Stoicism, one of the things, I think it's Heracles circles and that kind of same thing. Why do you think it's challenging sometimes to expand out that next that next circle well i saw some really interesting sociological research that said there are and again i try to talk about things that are really universal in my book but they're actually in the population or or genetically you know they're risk averse people they're more cautious people there's ones that are more sociable ones that are more introverted deliberate versus you know impulsive and so on and all of that diversity is needed to keep the gene pool going 
But one of the things that they've actually found is that conservative people, I don't mean that politically, but just more cautious people, let's say, have a more local sphere of concern in terms of these concentric circles. And more risk-taking or open people, if you've ever seen the ocean model, the personality typing model, one of the dimensions is the O in the acronym is openness, openness to new experience. People that are more open to new experiences tend to be more universalists. And so here's what happens. I'll give you a specific political example. You might see children being separated from their parents at the border and put in cages in this country. And if you say that to somebody who is a localist, they'll go, well, those children don't look like me. They don't speak my language. They don't worship the same way I do. They don't live in my town. So I don't identify with them as being part of my group. Whereas a universalist would say, look, this is basic human dignity. I mean, people that care about animal rights, they certainly care about human rights and universal human rights. And you're taking children and separating them from their families. No one should be treated that way. And so you can get the same event and view it through this local or universal lens and come to very different conclusions as to whether it's morally justified or, if, or whether you should continue doing it and so on. So I think what we're getting right now is a lot of self-sorting of these tribes, certainly in most countries along the rural-urban dimension. When you come to a big city, you get a bunch of new experiences, and that makes you open to new experiences, and it's a kind of a self-reinforcing loop. And all the, let's call them more adventurous people, leave the small towns. Well, that just kind of says that what we've been doing the same way here in this small town forever is what we should actually cling to more tightly. And so it's creating this polarization, I think. Is there anything that you're still scratching your head about in curiosity, Tim? Mm, there's so many things. I think that the brain is really the last frontier. We've explored outer space. I have a friend who's responsible for the camera mission on the Mars rover right now. That's pretty badass stuff. You know, we've gone down to the bottom of the ocean. We've looked at nanoscale technologies and created supercomputers that we can carry around in our phones. But the brain is the most complicated object in the universe. A hundred billion neurons talking to each other in real time and recycling and dying and being born and rewiring to understand what's inside of ourselves. That's a quite a self-referential feat to use our own brain to understand our brain. That's pretty, pretty cool too. <laughs> so I, I, there's so many things. I just, the deeper I go, the more I feel like Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> if someone listening was looking for a simple, maybe tiny step to unleash their primal brain, what might be a suggestion. Well, I have some some practical advice in my next to last chapter about how to be more primal. But one of the ones I've been thinking about lately, which is not necessarily in the book directly, is that there's a strong negativity bias we have. We have to pay attention to threats and loss of resources much more than upside. In other words, if I said, hey, Joshua, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I'd have to go chocolate. Chocolate. Okay, so here's a bowl of chocolate ice cream. But as you reach for it, I'm just going to whack you with a hammer on the back of your hand. What do you think? But just the one time. What do you think? You still want that chocolate? I'd have to think about that for a bit. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm going to take that as a no. I mean, we can predictably yeah. find that people are motivated more by loss and pain than they are with upside and pleasure. 
And again, that's a survival mechanism. If you didn't immediately deal with the threat in your environment, you died. And so we have this negativity bias. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is it's about a two, two and a half to one, depending on the circumstances, negativity bias. So as an entrepreneur, I think, why aren't most people entrepreneurial? Well, it's because if they have a conversation and their friend says, yeah, it's a stupid idea. And then their mom says, that's really a dumb idea. And, and they'd never do it. if That won't work because, I mean, there's a thousand reasons why this could go wrong. And entrepreneurs have to have this, I guess you'd call it culture of thought that says, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway. And it's going to work and it's going to be a huge success. And so what entrepreneurs often do is they consciously overcome a negativity bias by supplying a positivity bias in the other direction. So I think that's something we could all look at. Instead of saying, wow, this could misfire badly, you'd say, what happens if this goes exactly right? What happens if this works out? Because what's keeping us, I guess, a little too cautious or too conservative is this survival mechanism. And the thing is, most things don't have a survival impact. Look, if you're going to bungee jump, make sure it's the right weight and the cable stretches the right length, right? That does have survival implications. But most things in our social world, they don't have life and death consequences anymore. So we can be much more in the positivity direction and actively try to counterbalance that that threat and loss bias. I love that. That's such an important point to to understand. It seems like just our tendencies. Our our tendency is to to lean towards that and can help us hopefully see a little clearer. You offer a uh, a reading list at the end of the book, which I really appreciated. If you had to recommend one book from the list, anything come to mind? Well, there's so many good books on that list. That's just, I digested over several years all of those books and reread them as well as watched a bunch of videos, read a bunch of scientific papers, but I didn't want to bugger up the book with footnotes and endnotes and tables and charts and specific studies. Your mileage may vary anyway. I'm talking about the general tendency. So if you have, if there's a chapter in the book you like, you'll get a flavor for what other books you should read from the reading list. One of the ones that's probably the most sweeping that I enjoyed was Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari. The guy's just got an amazing mind and his ability to synthesize all kinds of information is, is stunning. I guess the way you describe that book is that it picks up what did we learn culturally for the most part. And I'm talking about the fact that we learn culturally and that being an evolutionary thing. So again, I'm talking about the operating system and he's talking about the programs that we're running on it. But that's a wonderful book, Sapiens. And then in terms of uh, personal or development, yeah, like I said, I, I basically stole a bunch of stuff from Walker's book, Why We Sleep. I recommend that to anyone. There's a few controversial things in it that maybe haven't been scientifically backed up, but he was the head of the, I believe, the Harvard and Berkeley sleep labs for many years and certainly knows a lot about sleep. Well, I appreciate that. I encourage everyone to pick up the book, Unleash Your Primal Brain demystifying how we think and why we act. This has been a great conversation. Where do you point people interested in learning more about you, Tim? Well, the, if you're on 
If you're interested in the book, go to primalbrain.com, easy enough. And if you can actually get the, a free chapter of your choice, if you go there, and I'll just send you a PDF of it. And if you're interested in my keynote speaking, marketing advisory or training, do that all over the world and virtually, go to timash.com. And then those of you that are on LinkedIn, I actually published uh, just recently a new neuromarketing class. It's all about how to take advantage of these evolutionary psychology principles if you're a marketer. It's an introductory class on LinkedIn Learning. So if you're part of that, you can get it for free along with all their other classes. And you can get to that by going to primalbrain.com slash course. I love it. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Tim Ash, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Right to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.